Uh, Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, please, if you haven't already. I pruned the rest of our hydrangeas this week. We have a whole row of hydrangeas in one spot in our house and a couple of other ones over here. That was my, my big yard work this week. I don't know as much as I'd like to know about pruning, making foliage beautiful. I like it to be beautiful. I like it to be orderly. I don't like it to be all out of control. And so I wade in and hack away. Now, lest you criticize me too harshly, you've got to understand, I pay attention when I'm driving around and Cisco Morris is on the radio. I listened to those questions, and one day he talked about pruning hydrangeas. And he said something like, you've got to take a third of them all the way down uh, and prune the other ones a different way. And, and so that's how I prune them. my wife taught me how to prune roses several years ago she says you you take them down to where there's a bud coming up so that's a pretty good rule of thumb I thought so I I kind of apply that to the hydrangeas as well and I thought well I'll I'll take some of them down and there's some dead and I'll cut that and you'll have to come by in a few months and tell me what you think of my work you may be laughing at my uneducated immature approach to gardening and rightly so. But a lot of people take that kind of an approach to growing in Christ. Well, I heard this, and I heard that, and I'm just going to kind of do what I know, and we'll just see how it comes out. I want to challenge you as we look at the last half of Philippians chapter 2 to get a real good picture of some of the characteristics of maturity so that you could look forward and say this is what I need to be when I grow up this is what I need to be as I grow up this clear picture serves both as a set of goals and a road map for becoming mature in Christ follow as I read please from Philippians 2 starting in verse 17 yes and if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith I'm glad And I rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one who is like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem, 
Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. We're going to look at this passage more or less uh, as we would work through the verses, but what we're really going to try to identify are the, some characteristics of mature believers. And the first characteristic that we want to see is this one from verse 17. Mature believers are servants. Servants. The Apostle Paul says, If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the service and, and sacrifice of your faith, I'm glad, and I rejoice with you all. Now what Paul is doing here is bringing up some imagery that they would have been readily uh, 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 familiar with, and it's the imagery of sacrifice in that day. And, and of course, uh, we're, we're familiar with the Old Testament sacrifice, but the pagan sacrifices had a similar, uh, a similar flow to them. And essentially what he's talking about is, a, is a, a, a sacrifice of wine that would have been made at the end of the regular sacrifice. It, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they would bring a sacrifice and part of it would be burned, or sometimes the whole thing would be burned. But at the end of that, they would take a glass of wine and pour it out onto it. And that's the reference he's making. He's saying, if I am that glass of wine being poured out in worship to God on the sacrifice and service of your faith, what he's saying is, you folks have served the Lord. And you have been able to serve the Lord because I ministered to you. And if my ministry to you enabled you to serve the Lord, and then now I'm in prison and I may die for this ministry I've carried on, and if such, I'm, I'm going to die, my life's going to be poured out. He says, that's okay. He says, be glad with me. He wasn't angry or depressed or discouraged at what many people would call a very unwelcome, uncomfortable circumstance. He was happy to be in jail. <laughs> Not because he liked jail, but because the reason he had gotten there was serving the Lord. And in particular, here he's talking to the people at Philippi, and he's saying, I came and ministered to you folks and a lot of other people, and if I'm in jail because of what I did, and if I lose my life because of serving the Lord, that's just fine. The Apostle Paul lived his life to serve other people. Look at also two other examples of his serving spirit in verse 19. I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. Now look at verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now think about this. Who needs these men more? The Philippian church who doesn't have anybody to preach on Sunday or the Apostle Paul who's in jail. And he can't feed himself. The Roman guards don't bring food to him. Somebody else has to bring him food. Somebody else has to take care of whatever his needs are. And here are the two guys who have been the best helpers he's had in jail. And what's he doing with them? Sending them back to Philippi. He says... I'm going to send Timothy to you, and we'll talk about him some more in a minute, but I'm going to send him to you because he will encourage you about everything that's going on here. And he's going to send Epaphroditus back. Epaphroditus was part of the Philippian church. He brought the offering that they took for Paul, 
And then he got sick while he was there, and they heard he was sick, and now they're worried about him. And so Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you so you can just see that he's doing fine. But what you have to get a hold of, the Apostle Paul is sending away his help. And if you remember from our earlier studies in Philippians, the local people in Rome, some of the local preachers or pastors seem to be uh, uh, jealous toward Paul, and they aren't helping him. And so he's sending his help away. Why does he do that? He's doing it because he's a servant. Have you ever said something like this? When I grow up, I want to serve people. My goal is to be a servant. You know, if you're like me, you probably haven't said that. Now, we know that Christ served. He said the Son of Man came to, to serve, not to be served. And yet, somehow, still, we don't say, the high, one of the highest goods I could do in life is to serve other people. My grandson Malachi loves anything to do with firefighters, fire trucks. He has boots that have a fire department insignia and a little coat and loves that stuff. And if he grows up and becomes a firefighter, that would be an honorable profession and I'd be proud of him in that. I'm certainly not asking him what he's going to be when he grows up at this age. But you know, when kids get up toward the end of high school, people are starting to say, uh, where are you going to go to college? Where are you going to go to tech school? What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to be when you grow up? I was already in the ministry full time, and an older pastor said to me, do you hope to be a pastor yourself someday? <laughs> it's Carl Wheeler. <laughs> yeah, Carl, I hope to be a pastor myself someday when I quit being a youth pastor. You know, a lot of people, when they would ask, say, a teenager, what do you want to be someday? What are you aiming for? What's your goal in life? And if the teenager were to say, I don't know, I'm just going to kind of float around a little bit. You might not say it, but you'd think, slacker. Why don't you get some direction for your life? Why don't you be something? Why don't you go somewhere? Christian, what are you aiming toward in your Christian growth? What is the mark that you have out there that says, this is what maturity looks like? You wouldn't be a Christian slacker, would you? We need to be looking forward and saying that the ultimate of maturity is serving other people. Boy, that's what the Apostle Paul did. And that's what we need to do. We need to become servants. Mature believers are servants. Number two, the example that we see here is this. Mature believers are humble. Humble. Certainly that's the theme of Philippians 2, verses 1 through uh, 16. The Apostle Paul just really lays this out. And these men exemplify this truth. Uh, beginning in verse 19. Look at the way Paul talks. But I trust in the Lord... Jesus to send Timothy to you. Humility means constantly seeking the Lord's will. Humility. 
Humility means I'm not in charge, God is in charge. Look at verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. The Apostle Paul, if you don't know, if you haven't read enough of the New Testament to understand it, the Apostle Paul was a purpose-driven, strategically thinking man. If you follow his missionary journeys, he didn't approach the world like I approached the Hagen grocery store. You know, I don't know if all men do this, but you know how I buy groceries at the Hagen? I, I always go to the produce first, and then I think, yeah, I need something over here. And then I think, oh, I need something over there. My wife goes up and down every aisle. See, she is strategic and purpose-driven, and I am erratic and out of control. The Apostle Paul knew the world, and he said, now I'm going to go here and here and here and here and there and there, and then I hope to get to Rome, and then my, my big end goal is to get out to Spain. You know, he actually talked about that. He never made it. But he had this whole plan in mind. If you follow, he went out on a trip, then he went, then he went back, and, and while he went back, he, he was reporting what had gone on when he went out, and then he came back to his base. He was there for a while, then he went out again. He was very careful, very strategic, and he, he thinks, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And yet, he was constantly aware of this truth. In him, in Christ, we live and breathe and have our move and have our being. There was a time when the Apostle Paul wanted to go east into what would now be called Turkey, and, and he, he was determined to go there, he says, but the Holy Spirit said no. And then shortly after it says he determined to go again, and the Holy Spirit said no. And because of that, he turned west. And because of that, we're sending out the missionaries, not the other way around in the world. But he had a plan and a purpose and a strategy but he held his plan and purpose and strategy with open hands to the Lord. He was very careful always to be certain that he was following God's plans. He, he, he lived out this truth from James. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit. In other words, you're making plans for your life. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. That is humility before God. Are you humble before the Lord when it comes to the dreams and plans you have for your life and His ministry? In other words, do you come to God saying, oh God, I'd like to do this, or I'd like to do that, or I'd like us to do this, or us to do that, and, and yet are you humble enough to say, if God wills it otherwise, that's fine, because I'm here to serve the Lord and to serve people. We should not be asking him to bless our plans, we should be asking him to show us his plan. Mature believers are always available, but never in charge. When I grow up, I want to be humble and consistently available to God. Believers are humble. Number three, 
Mature believers are dedicated. Dedicated. Look at verse 19. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one who is like-minded. The word like-minded actually uses the word soul. I have no one like-souled. You know, as I thought about it this week, I thought about what would be an example of people whose souls are together? And I thought about some of those rabid football fans who go to the football game and they stand in a line with their shirts off and their massive amount of skin painted. <laughs> and they are one in soul for the football team. The Apostle Paul said that Timothy and him had the same soul. They were, they were together in the way they thought and felt and acted. And look what Paul also says. I have no one who is so like-minded except Timothy. Now, I don't think he was talking about Epaphroditus because he certainly commends Epaphroditus, but he's talking about in terms of who can I send back to you? Our best understanding of Epaphroditus is he, he was not a pastor or a preacher or a missionary, that kind of a person. He was an average man in the church who they trusted to take the offering to Paul. And so Paul needed to send somebody back who could share the scripture, who could encourage them about Paul's condition. And as he looked around in Rome, he said, there's only one guy that I can send and it's the Apostle Paul. Now, if my assumption is correct that he's looking for a pastoral kind of guy to send back, and if he had to say, you know, there's nobody else who will drop everything and go back to you and serve you, that's a pretty bad indictment on people in Rome at that time. Let's paraphrase it this way. There are not any elders in Rome who I can send to minister to you because there are not any who are wholly dedicated to Christ. Throughout the scripture and from Jesus himself, we realize there are some common things that get in the way of complete dedication. Here's one. Attachment to family. Look what Jesus said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I, I understand that God tells us to take care of our family in other scripture. And so putting that together, I believe what Jesus is saying is, your love for me needs to be so much greater than your love for family that you're willing to do whatever I say and put your family second when I call you to do so. Here's another example of that. He said to, to another man, and this man had come to him, to, he said, I want to be a disciple. And he said, follow me. But the man said, let me first go and bury my father. Now to our way of thinking, that means the father just died and they're going to have a funeral tomorrow or the next day. But that's not what it means here. What it means is I have to go back and stay with my family until my father dies someday. And when that's done, my obligation to my family will be done. Then I can come and follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. 
Now, we look at that and say, wow, that's, that's harsh. All I can tell you is that Jesus said our commitment to him needs to supersede our commitment to our family. Now, when you enter into a marriage relationship, when you enter into a parenting uh, situation with your children, you have responsibilities. God doesn't say you can just leave those and walk away. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying somehow the commitment to family needs to be superseded by a commitment to the Lord. And because of that, apparently, some people would not would not fully serve the Lord as Paul was seeking. There's another attachment that gets in the way of our service to the Lord, our dedication to the Lord. It's, it's the attachment to possessions. Jesus, here's a man who came to Jesus to said, I want to be a disciple. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, God doesn't ask every single Christian to sell everything they have in order to be a follower of him. I understand that. Poverty is not uh, a virtue in and of itself. Um, if you are a poor person, that's a fine thing. It's not a wickedness either. But I think of somebody like Jesse and Tina Looper. You know, Jesse and Tina Looper, who are serving the Lord up here with the native uh, population in, uh, in, in Canada. Um, Jesse had a successful business as an auto body repair and uh, got saved as an adult. He and his wife both got saved, and they felt the Lord calling them to go to Bible school and prepare to be a pastor and pastor's wife. So what did they do? They sold their business. They sold their house. They went to Bible school, became a pastor, became a missionary. Okay? That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. Are you willing to let go of your stuff in order to serve me? That's hard. It's hard sometimes. But that's the challenge. The third attachment that uh, gets in the way of dedication is this one, attachment to physical safety. Now, that's, that, you know, all of these sound kind of crazy. Like, Pastor Dave, what are, you, are you telling me I, I need to put myself in harm's way in order to be a Christian? To be a follower of Christ? No. I'm telling you, you need to be willing to put yourself in harm's way if God calls you to do it. The Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations wait me. It's the Apostle Paul talking. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, in the time of Paul, if he were to say, will any of you guys go to Philippi? What he was asking them to do was to either get on a boat or maybe to get on a donkey, but even more likely to walk a, long, a large part of the journey as well as to get on a boat to travel 800 miles, a journey by which, uh, by some estimates of the people I read this week, would take six weeks and as you're journeying out through the wilderness, there would be bands of robbers waiting there to rob you. Like the, like the story of the Good Samaritan that we see. And here they are, they're going to go 800 miles that way, and then come 800 miles this way. And there's a real chance of physical harm. The Apostle Paul said, I know, <laughs> I know that chains, that means, you know, imprisonment, 
and tribulations await me, but I don't count my life dear to myself. Wow. I'm not quite there yet. You know, the historic example of this that we would look to um, a couple of generations ago now is a guy named Jim Elliott, who was a pilot and a, a missionary. And they, he and his group wanted to evangelize a remote tribe of headhunters in Ecuador. can't remember the country, South America. And so they flew in. And I don't remember the whole story if they were there more than once, but eventually the headhunters did what headhunters do. And several missionaries lost their lives. But you know what happened? The very people who committed those murders got saved. And their lives were changed. And the whole, the whole system changed. The... But it wouldn't have happened without a guy who, who didn't care about his life and... And his wife, who stayed put, and the other missionaries who stayed put and carried on the ministry in his absence. Yikes. Look at Philippians 1.21 that we've just been talking about. They, he said there's a problem between people who seek their own things, they're attached to their own stuff, not the things of Christ. And, and one commentator this week pointed out, this is in contrast to Philippians 1.21. Look at Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the commentator made this statement, you're either living in Philippians 1.21 or you're living in Philippians 2.21 seeking your own. Mature believers are dedicated, wholly dedicated. Number four, mature believers have proven character or demonstrated character. Look at verse 19. I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you, that I may be encouraged, for I have no one like-minded, verse 20, for all seek their own, verse 21. Verse 22, for you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. In the day of Paul, it was pretty common for a son to grow up and have the same profession as the father, uh, have a trade. You know, maybe a guy's a blacksmith or he's a farmer or whatever he is, and he, he grows up and they, they work together, and then one day the, the, the father dies and the son, you know, takes over and carries on and, and so on. And, and the apostle Paul says, Timothy has been like a son to me in the faith and he has proven character. That's why I'm sending him back to you. The Apostle Paul was sending Timothy in his place. Do, do you think, have you thought about that? The Apostle Paul, here's the guy known everywhere. He's done miracles. He's written the Word of God, all of these things. And he says, this guy is like me. I'm going to send him to minister to you. Timothy was that dependable. He had proven himself that much. Timothy went to, was sent by Paul to Thessalonica, to Corinth, to Ephesus. He went out and did the ministry that Paul sent him to do. And, and uh, we can assume that he carried that out and, and did, not, uh, did not fail, did not give up. 
There is an example of somebody who failed in the ministry, and, and the Apostle Paul said he's not going this time. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them. Whatever John Mark did, he gave up at some point. He departed in Pamphylia, and he'd not gone with them to the work. Um, excuse me. He had departed and not gone with them to the work. They came to a rough spot, or, or Mark came to a rough spot. And somehow he said, that's it, I'm going back home. Now, uh, that happens as we are growing. But when we become mature, we stay the course. Our character has been proven. The path to proven character is a series of steps of increasing responsibility that begins by doing whatever you're asked to do by the Lord wholeheartedly as to the Lord for the benefit of others. The next step is to take the next task in the same way. In other words, Paul, uh, Timothy was a teenager. He got saved when Paul was out there in his hometown and, and Paul was there for a while, and he said, you know, I'd like to take Timothy with me to do the ministry. Just like he had taken John Mark with him at one time. And Timothy came with him, and they did this, did this, did this, and Paul taught him, taught him, taught him, and then he sent him here to do this, he sent him there to do that. And now it comes the, a significant crunch time, and he says, I'm going to send Timothy because he has proven character. Timothy didn't just wake up with that one day. Timothy got that because he was at the Lord's disposal to do what the Lord wanted, and this verse became true in his life. He who is faithful in what is least will also be faithful in what is much. He did a little, and the Lord blessed, and he did more, and he, and he just followed the Lord from one thing to another. When I read that and studied that this week, I, I thought of, of a fellow named Greg Laurie, that's Greg Laurie, for that matters to you. But um, Greg Laurie is the pastor of a church of several thousand down in Riverside, California. And while I'm fully aware that there are many large churches that don't really preach God's word, Greg Laurie is not one of those. He cuts it straight and true and puts it on the radio besides. And uh, um, he, he preaches the truth of God. And, you know, some people might look at him and say, how did he get to be the pastor of, of a church of thousands? And, and he goes all over the world and holds what he calls uh, harvest crusades. They, they, it's, it's sort of like uh, the old uh, Billy Graham crusade, if you will, where he has a big meeting and he preaches the gospel and tries to get people saved. And, and uh, you know, people might say, how did that happen? Well, by the way, this is, I'm reading from a, one of our library books. Somebody out there has my copy of this book. There you go. Okay. I'm so glad to find that out and to hold you accountable and, uh, and to know that you will certainly bring it back when you're done. See, books are not just trophies on my shelf. They are tools in my arsenal here. But uh, wonderful story. You want to read a great story of salvation and how the Lord works in somebody's life, pick this up. It's an easy read. And uh, I'll leave it right here on this table. And you can check it out of our library. There's the card right there. But... but you know, Greg got saved as a uh, college-age student. And uh, he says this about his life. I wasn't at home that often, though. I basically lived at Calvary Chapel. That's the church where the people were that had led him to Christ. 
I, I basically lived at Calvary Chapel hanging around to do whatever odd jobs needed to be done and scoping around for food. I talked with, <laughs> I talked with new Christians. I evangelized on the street. I answered the phones. I ran errands. And when Chuck Smith was out of the office, this was the pastor, when Chuck Smith was out of the office, his assistant would actually forward some of his calls to me. I'd talk with people who had spiritual questions or who were going through difficult times or who just wanted to know more about Jesus. After his appointments, Chuck would come home, would come bustling back into the office, shaking his head and grinning, wondering aloud what the callers would think if they'd known that the person counseling them on the phone was an 18-year-old hippie who had only recently come to Christ. During this time, I started teaching a Bible study in Long Beach, the same city I was born in. Now here I was, born again, sitting on a stool with a music stand in front of me that held my big Bible and my notes. Teenagers came from all over the area for meetings, and, and I was overflowing with youthful energy and passion for the Lord. Hanging out at Calvary Chapel, I often took jobs no one else wanted. One of those jobs turned out to be the beginning of the church I still pastor today. And this is from 1972 to today. So 82, 92, 2002, you know, coming up toward 40 years here. No one else wanted this job. Back in 72, the opportunity didn't look like much. But then again, I didn't look like much either. As the pastor-to-be, I was 19 years old with long blonde hair, a, red dish, a reddish beard, a few sets of clothes, and a Corvair that was trying to kill me. <laughs> the church-to-be was a dwindling, a dwindling Bible study of young people meeting in Riverside, California. Back then, I knew Riverside as the town I had driven through on my way to someplace else, like Palm Springs or the mountains. It was hot, no beaches, no copper tone in the air. One day, a group of the young associate pastors at Calvary Chapel were discussing who would lead the Bible study in Riverside that week. I was hanging around at the church, my drafting board set up in the corner so I could do freelance graphics. I was also ready to do whatever no one else wanted. Someone in the meeting thought of me. Why don't we let Greg go do this Bible study? He's available. Of course, I was always available. I jumped at the chance. And 40 years later, he's pastoring a church of thousands in the very same place where he took a job that nobody else wanted. None of those other associate pastors would humble themselves to go lead a failing Bible study. You want to have proven character? Take the job God gives you and approach it as saying, this job is from God. I will do it for God and I will do it the best that I can. That's what Timothy did. And over the years, he became the man who the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to send him to you because he thinks just like me about the things of the Lord. Mature believers have proven character. Number five, mature, mature believers are brave. Look at verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus, again, came from Philippi with the offering for Paul from that church. He was part of that church. And now he's going to send him back because of his illness and healing and, and how things have gone. But look how he characterizes Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. 
my fellow soldier. What's it mean to be a soldier? What's the imagery that the Apostle Paul is trying to get for us here? In 2 Timothy 2, Paul speaks of a soldier as being willing to endure hardship, staying focused on the battle rather than the things back home. But I don't think that's what he's talking of so much here. I think he sees Epaphroditus as the man in the battle line next to him. The way the Romans conducted battle, if, you, if you've ever seen you know, a movie of some of those great battles, maybe you have this image in your mind, but they, they would carry a, soul, a, 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 a shield that was almost as tall as they were. And when they got ready to go into battle, they would join ranks, and the shields would be brought together like this, so that here's a row of soldiers, and they're behind their shields, and what the enemy saw was just this whole row of shields. And as they advanced, that whole line would advance together. And I think the Apostle Paul is saying, he's the guy in the line next to me. We're in this together. In Paul's day, there was no long-distance warfare. There was no flying in an airplane and dropping a bomb. There was no shooting a, a long-distance projectile. There was no rifle. Closest thing to that would have been a spear or a or a bow and arrow, but ultimately warfare was conducted at the length of a sword. And what does it take to engage in that kind of battle? I've, I've thanked the Lord a number of times that I did not have to be in an army in that era. Boy, it took courage to fight in a battle like that. Look at chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 7. The Apostle Paul makes reference to his life's work. He says, I have you in my heart inasmuch as both is in my chains, he's in prison, and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are partakers with me of grace. The Apostle Paul characterized part of his ministry as defending the gospel. And what he meant by that was he had to... to you know, stand and give an answer. He had to talk to a Jewish people who said, no, Jesus isn't the Messiah, and he had to reason from the scriptures about that. He, you know, he had to share his testimony before kings, etc. He had to defend what he believed, and, and, and somehow in this whole process, he says, Epaphroditus is a soldier with me in this battle. Epaphroditus was, was this kind of a soldier like this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore. When you ask yourself, am I a soldier of the Lord? The question that has to be asked is something like this. What happens when the going gets tough? You know, I mean, a, a Roman soldier, of course, didn't have any choice. He couldn't say, you know, I'm kind of tired today. You know, this battle doesn't look like it's going to go that well. He didn't have a choice to say, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live to fight another day. Hey, he's on the line. You move forward. You stand your ground. What did Epaphroditus do? when the soldiers guarding Paul made fun of the gospel. 
Have you ever thought of that? Have, have, you, have you tried to use your sanctified imagination and say, what was it like for Paul? Here's Paul. He's literally chained to a Roman guard. What was it like on the day that he had the first conversation about the gospel? We know from reading the whole book that some of these guards and, and, and some of the people in Caesar's household got saved. But what was it like on day one sharing that message? It's probably like on day one when you share that message. Only difference is you got a big burly soldier there with a sword in his hand. Okay? And, uh, and what did Epaphroditus do? Did he turn to Paul and say, Now, Paul, take it easy here, bud. I mean, this guy's a Roman centurion. Come on. No. Uh, if he was Paul's fellow soldier, he said, Hey, bud, you better listen to this. <laughs> Let me tell you my testimony. Let me share how God's worked in my life. Whatever it was, he got right up in the line with Paul. He stood up for the gospel. How did Epaphroditus react when he heard that the local pastors were criticizing Paul for being in jail? He stood with Paul and he encouraged him. What did Epaphroditus say when he was deathly ill and 800 miles away from home? He said, it's okay, Paul. I'm here for the Lord. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the belief that something is more important than what frightens us. The devil will use things in your life to try to scare you away from living for the Lord. Uh, if it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. And the question you have to ask is, am I going to be a good soldier? Am I going to stand my ground with the Lord? Or am I going to cut and run? Now, I think, again, as we're talking about growth, everybody fails at some points. But we're trying to draw a picture of what does it mean to be a mature believer? Mature believers are brave Number six, mature believers are role models. Role models. Look at verse 29. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men, not just him, but people like him, in esteem. Now, be careful here. I did not say that he sought to be a role model, or that people who seek to be role models are role models. I said mature believers are role models. Hold him in esteem. The Apostle Paul says several things that, that reinforce this theme. He, and Like here, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Apostle Paul said, you want to know how to be like Jesus? Then live like me. Wow. Is that the kind of Christian you're aiming to be so that you can say to others, you live like me and you'll be okay? You say, well, that's not, just, that's not for us. That's just for the Apostle Paul. Really? Look what the writer of Hebrews said. He said, you should imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. He said, you should be imitating mature believers. Or how about this? 
by this time, you ought to be teachers. The writer of Hebrews writes to the recipients of this letter and he says, you folks have been dilly-dallying around and you are still immature. You should already be teachers by now. Mature believers are role models. They don't just transfer knowledge. It's not that kind of teaching. It's a role model as in, I'm living like Christ and I'm living an example for you. Epaphroditus is a wonderful example here because he was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was a man in the church who was dependable, and they put the offering in his hands, and he carried it 800 miles to the apostle Paul. Now, I I expect there may have been some other people with him. I don't know. But he was a person like anybody who's sitting here today but he was dependable. He had proven character, and so he was entrusted with this great ministry. And as such, the Apostle Paul says, this guy risked his life for the gospel. You should be imitating him. You should hold him in high regard. You should esteem him. Now, last week we had uh, people from Camp Gilead here, and... uh, you, if you were here, you learned that uh, Andrew is going to be uh, supervising the, the high school staff. High school staff are unpaid staff. They're called leaders in training, and then they're called counselors in training. So he's going to be their role model. Now, if he were to say, I can live any way I want to live. I'm not a role model. Would you find that acceptable? That here he is spending a week at a time with teenage kids and he is leading them and they're looking up to the big college man. And, uh, and he says, you know, like we hear the, the secular athletes say, I'm not a role model, don't follow me, you know, I, I'm just going to live my life, whatever. Do you think that would be acceptable for somebody in a position like that to say? You say, well, no. He's got to be a good example for them kids. That's part of the reason he's there. If they're going to be counselors in training, what about you? What about you? Is it okay for you not to be a role model? Is it okay for you to say, hey, look, I'm not the pastor. I'm not the Sunday school teacher. I'm not the Iwana commander. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not a role model. Is it okay? No, God expects you to be striving to become an example to other people. This last Wednesday, I did a graveside funeral for someone I didn't know with a crowd of relatives that I didn't know. One of their friends is a common friend of mine. That woman is a Christian, to, my, to her knowledge and mine. None of these people were Christians. And she asked me if I would uh, do this graveside service. I said, sure. Um, and uh, so I went, and I preached the gospel in as best a way that I could, that I felt would connect with these people and with the life of the person who had died. And uh, I sang a hymn in conclusion did a few other things, and when it was done, my friend complimented my work in a very sincere way that was a real encouragement to me. 
I want to do a good job. I want to be a role model. I want to be exemplary. But I could also tell you some stories about times when I haven't been a role model and I haven't been exemplary. And some of those have been in my family and some in the community and some in the churches. But the failures don't mean I can't become what God intends for me. They just show me where I need to work. What do you want to be when you grow up? Heavenly Father, help us. We struggle so much with our sinful flesh that craves to do whatever we want to do. Help us to get this picture of maturity in mind and help us to pursue and help us to... uh, Help us to achieve and help us not to excuse ourselves. I pray in Christ's name, amen.